Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. This conversation is actually a special one for me, and that is because I got the chance to catch up, have a proper sit down, and go back through the career history and story of my friend, longtime podcast listener, and Create Engage client, John Howard, CEO of Channel 3 Consulting. Now, a bit of backstory on John. After a short stint in teaching, John moved into sales, where a chance encounter with consultants that were working with the business that he was in at the time exposed him to an industry that he would go on to work in for over two decades. His career to date has spanned big four boutique firms and a few industry roles in between. And with all of that on his CV, John has plenty of lessons and plenty of advice to help you if you're looking to climb in the industry. In his current role as CEO of Channel 3, John led the management buyout from the firm's founders and is now leading the team through a period of rapid growth, a journey that we go into detail on in today's episode. 
In this wide-ranging conversation, John shares many of the lessons and critical pivot points that have helped him get to where he is today, including how John got started in the industry and his advice to others looking to break into consulting, the invaluable lessons that John learned as a salesman, and his advice on how to overcome many of the barriers that hold consultants back when it comes to selling, and the vital piece of career advice that ultimately led to John becoming the CEO of Channel 3. Having got to know John over the last couple of years and learned about his career journey over that time, I knew he'd make a great guest for the show, and I'm really pleased that he said yes to making an appearance. So with the intro complete, all that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with John Howard. John, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. I know you're an avid listener. I know we've known each other for a long time. So it's it's great to finally welcome you onto the podcast. No, thank you. Appreciate it. So for those who maybe don't know you so well, it'd be great if we could kick off with just a potted history on on who you are and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I'm currently the have the privilege of being the chief exec at uh, Channel 3 Consulting. We're a consultancy that helps health and care organizations do great stuff with technology. Been around for a number of years and just a real privilege to lead the team at Channel 3. I've had a career that kind of, if you'd asked me 20 odd years ago where I'd end up, I never would have thought it'd be here, but it's been great. So it's been a career with lots of uh, twists and turns that's kind of probably in four parts, really. I think there was the post-university figuring out what I want to do with myself, kind of, or just starting to figure that out. So I grew up in the States, went to the University of Arkansas, and um, after I left, so my degree was in Spanish and Latin American studies, and went straight from university into a program called Teach for America, which is a bit like Teach First here in the UK. And despite the advice of my parents, who were both educators, that uh, I wasn't going to be probably ideally suited to be a teacher. Uh, and they were right, by the way. I, I went into that, and and that took me to Houston, Texas. And I was teaching bilingual fourth grade, which is kind of 10-year-olds. And so it's one of the few things, I'd say, where I've been just kind of a spectacular failure in life. I was not cut out to be uh, an elementary school teacher, but that had taken me to Houston. And so I, I decided that was a two-year thing. I decided to leave that after six months for the benefit of the children's education in my sanity. So then I was in the kind of, okay, what do I do next? And so got by by just virtue of looking for, for, for a job into a couple of jobs that were in basically import-export and got into procurement and sales stuff. And that took me to a big global company called Semex, which is one of the biggest cement manufacturers in the world. So really, really exciting stuff. But And that kind of in the twists and turns tale took me into some work in a system implementation that they were doing globally to implement a system called J.D. Edwards, which was the ERP system they were implementing. And it was kind of right at the end of the 90s when, if you can remember that back that far, kind of airplanes were going to fall out of the sky for year 2000 stuff and all of that. So I got involved in helping Semex implement J.D. Edwards uh, globally and wouldn't have been involved in that had it not been kind of being stuck in a conference room because my office space wasn't ready yet and stuck in with the guys who were leading that implementation. And I guess that's kind of one of the early things of you don't ever know where something in life might take you because that that set me up for getting into consulting. So moved from Semex across into consulting with EY in Houston and did a number of big system implementation projects for a few years. That then took me to a company called BMC Software, which is, again, Houston-based. They do back-end system management stuff. It's really quite 
probably shouldn't say, but not the most exciting technology in the world, but really, really important stuff. That led me to an opportunity to help them build their consulting practices in Europe. So it took me to to Madrid for a bit. And in the course of that, I also met my partner and who's British. And that's how I ended up in London. So none of that I would have predicted, but that's um that's that's kind of how things played out. So I guess in that in that second phase with EY and then with BMC, it was really a period of kind of learning how to help clients do projects well and kind of getting getting my my feet into consulting. I guess the third stage I talk about is kind of learning how to run a business and and lead teams and things. I had the real privilege after EY, I went to work for a company called Hedra. I had the privilege to lead our work at Hedra with a big NHS IT program called the National Program for IT, where I was uh, given the opportunity to take on kind of increasing leadership um, roles in that. When Hedra got bought by Michelle after about five years, was asked by Michelle to go and run as the MD of a couple of the joint ventures they have with local authorities in the Northwest. So, and in those experiences, really the first the first chance I'd had to to build teams, to lead a group of people, to have responsibility for PNL, and found that quite interesting. And then, I guess from there went into KPMG, so kind of back into pure consulting after the um, Michelle days, and was involved in in building KPMG's health practice, focused in the commissioning space, also in the in the data analytics space. And I guess, I, so I left KPMG in 2018, and it was at that point where I thought, well, kind of, what do I really want to do next? And that's what I guess I'd call the fourth stage, which is kind of realizing what I'm really passionate about doing. And I've learned that over the years that that's about helping build a business, create teams, creating conditions for t- teams to kind of do great things for customers, create a great place to live. And that's when I came to to Channel 3. What I saw really there was the opportunity to to do that in a business that had been running for about 10 years, but had some real future possibilities that the the owners were interested in in, in pursuing. And that's kind of how I've got to where I am. So it's my slightly rambling answer to the twists and turns of the last 20 odd years. Really, Joe, I, I think actually, you know, as sort of a, a career-long consultant, very structured, the four stages are very helpful as well to me for actually leading this interview. So thank you very much for that. And you as a listener and other listeners know, I do like to go in a linear fashion. And I don't know if it's worth starting all the way back at your Teacher America days. And I mean, gosh, I teaching for me is having been a child and a student, I can see why you might not want to be a teacher. It's why I wasn't. And so that might not be the jump. But the the point around sort of getting into consulting, because I, I always think our industry in some ways is very easy. You apply for a graduate scheme. You know, that seems very simple. But actually, for a whole load of people, that isn't the routine. You know, I didn't go in as a typical graduate, nor did you. And I, I'd love to understand a bit more about that time at Semex and and how you found this sort of opportunity with this project team. You're in the room with them, but many people would have been absorbed in their own kind of life and day-to-day goings-on. How did those sort of, and I going back a bit, I appreciate, but how, how did that sort of initial interaction start? Did you see this and think, I like that, I want a bit of that? How did that start? Yeah, I, I think it was a bit of, I like that. I I think it's interesting, probably selfishly, there were probably opportunities I could see for taking on extra work or doing some travel associated with that. So I'm sure there was a bit of a selfish element to it as well. But it was a thing that needed to be done that I I enjoyed the company of the people who were working on it. They kind of valued the skills that I could bring to it. And and I put my hand up and kind of got involved and took the opportunity to do that. There was no more planning or design to it than that, really. And it sounds, I mean, when you say it there, it sounds quite easy. I guess thinking back, and maybe this is more for others listening, sort of 
actually, how did you interject yourself into that? Because presumably you had a day job going on, you know, I think yeah, from our conversations, sort of you were in, in the sales team. So how did you balance that? Because yeah, it's something I know I remember from my days in consulting, I'm sure you have it even today with clients, is your team's on site, they're the consultants. It's it's quite glamorous, fast paced, exciting. For anyone listening who's in those sort of client sites, how can they start to get involved in a way that they can learn and doesn't compromise their role so that they get that exposure and experience? I mean, thinking back, I've not really thought about that way before. There's probably in any business, whether that was back then for me now, or I could say the same thing about stuff I do or, or people in our team do today. There are almost always opportunities to do things beyond what's in the day job. Because in any business, there's stuff that needs to get done <laughs> that's on top of what everybody's already got on their plate. And I think there's something about finding those things. It's something that, you know, I always encourage or I would encourage people at whatever stage in their career to do, you know, finding those things that are kind of the, the extracurriculars that really interest you so that you can learn something new, you can do something, you can demonstrate, you know, it demonstrates to the people you work for that you're kind of ambitious and want to help do additional things. But it also, I think, creates a spark and an interest so that if what you're doing day to day gets a bit less than exciting, um, you can carry on with that because you've got this other thing over on the side. And as long as you don't get completely distracted from what you need to be doing, that it's just good to be out on the lookout for interesting stuff to do, I think. Yeah, I think that, as you say, that point of just, there is always room if you make it. And I think it, it's that optionality, isn't it? Of, you know, for you, it was, you were next to them in the room. And so it, you know, it, there was a coincidence element, but actually if you keep your eyes open, you can find it. And I, I, I also wonder with some of these things, it's the kind of old, if you seek, you will find, you know, the cliched one is if you think of a car you want to buy, you'll suddenly see that car everywhere. I mean, was that an element at all for you? And, you know, maybe not, I want to be a management consultant, but was there something when you were at Semex, you know, you, you mentioned that cement wasn't necessarily your calling. Do, do you <laughs> think- cement anybody's calling. <laughs> was there an element of that looking, actually looking for something else or- Am I, I might be overanalyzing this one, John. No, and I, I shouldn't disparage cement. I had a great time at, at Cemex and learned a huge well, amount. We wouldn't, <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't be in this building without cement, so exactly. I'm a big fan. Exactly. No, I, I think I could, with the benefit of hindsight, try to overthink what actually was going on in, in that phase. I do think there is something about spotting the things that you enjoy doing. So for, the, for me, that was having an interaction with different sets of people. It was some of the travel that was associated with kind of going back and forth to headquarters, which was in Monterey, Mexico, and some of the need to do some of those things, which was outside of what I would have done if I weren't weren't doing some extracurricular stuff. So I think there's there's always a bit of kind of what does the business need and what do you need and trying to find a way to match those things up is usually where where good stuff happens for the business and for, for the person working there. Yeah, I, th I think that's a really good point. And actually, I kind of want to jump in that, first phase for that reason to BMC, because this is a very British view on America, but you don't get many Americans who travel, I think, as extensively as you. And I'd love to know where that drive to travel came from. You know, you mentioned you sort of took an opportunity with BMC to go and build a European business. That's quite a bold step at what I imagine was quite a young age. Kind of what drove you to say yes to that new country, new place, new role? That's, that's a lot of new in one thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd been at BMC for a while before that came up. So, I mean, I, I kind of caught the travel bug in university. So I mentioned I, I had studied Spanish. And I spent, you know, a good bit of time abroad and just fell in love with different places and the experience of traveling. And so that, that, that kind of was with me. And it's been something that I've sought out over the years, less so in recent years. But so for me, when the opportunity at BMC came up, I'd been with them probably six months or so. And 
Um, there was a link to the fact that I spoke Spanish and their professional services business was based out of Spain. So that, that helped, but it, it wasn't a hard decision for me to make. It was helped undoubtedly by the fact that I just met my partner and we were kind of at the point where he could either come to the States or I could come to Europe and that would enable us to be in closer proximity. So there was undoubtedly another kind of selfish element to what we were doing at, at that point as well that, that, that helped. But it wasn't, it wasn't a hard decision to take because I already was kind of sold on the idea of seeing different parts of the world and do, and that, that didn't really, yeah, it was daunting, but it wasn't scary because I guess I'd done it a few times before that. Maybe then a better question, particularly for other listeners who who haven't traveled, is almost what you you mentioned. Like you say, you traveled at university. We we haven't touched on the Spanish degree. Now we might go there because I'm intrigued. You know, in a world that is full of economists, business and finance graduates, I think uh, Spanish is is slightly less common. But what were some of those things that either those university travels or you know taking it towards when you were at BMC that sort of international exposure gave you because I think that's something particularly now COVID is it's still here but you can travel people are starting to look at that and one of the massive benefits of consulting is you can travel and I'd love to know whether it's your role now or some of those roles we'll, we'll talk about on your journey what are some of those big lessons actually that you took away from that international travel? There's an element that's just fun, right? Or I found it fun. At least it's you're seeing new places, you're meeting new people, you're doing stuff that you just wouldn't do. And so if that kind of lights your fire, then then why wouldn't you get involved in that? I think there's I found benefit from having learned to live and work in different places. And you know, people talk about the UK and the US being separate, you know, separated by a common language, and that's very, very true. It was a, it, a massive culture shock when I moved here 20 odd years ago, but it's, you know, all those things stretch you and it's interesting. And I think there's a kind of, if you learn to take the good with that and to learn, but to do it with a healthy dose of kind of humility and recognizing that, you know, you're from a different part of the world and it's for you to learn as much to impart what you might be able to impart. I don't know. I've just always found that, that experience of being in different places and both for kind of personal travel and and work travel to be really interesting. Do you find that to your point, that kind of, I guess, appreciation or learning of other cultures that helps you in in a sort of work context and that like balancing different cultures, different personalities. Because you know, even in the UK, you might say that the the South is different from the North, and we're just separated by the M1. So, yeah, ha- is that what you know when you're talking about that sort of learning? Has that been something that stood with you, or is that kind of talked about but not actually when you get down to people, not as distinct as you'd think? No, I mean, I think I do, and I don't always do it well. And there'd probably be people who'd say you don't do it at all. But I do try to think about different perspectives and put myself in the shoes of others. And I think that, and also just kind of bring a bit of, as I said before, a bit of humility to the way you approach things. That whether that's born out of having traveled a lot or whether that's born out of, you know, just working with different places or my my kind of innate sense of, like, just try to be nice to people is... um probably all comes from that kind of experience of lots of different cultures and different different places, if you will, over the years. I want to touch on Madrid, but to just give me context, how good was, I say was, it might still be, how good is your Spanish or was your Spanish then? It was quite fluent at the time. It's much less so now because I haven't spoken it to speak of for 20 years. I mean, there was a period when I lived in Houston when I hardly spoke any English because all of my work and all of my friends were, all of that was in Spanish. So it, it was quite advanced as Spanish for non-native speaker goes. It's Sorry. it's a bit rusty now. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer to this, this, this might be a, a bit of a non-question then, John, but how, how did you find that moving to a country where it was you know, 
completely foreign. I mean, you mentioned you did a lot of work in Mexico. So actually, that might not have been a huge jump because you know, Mexico is a different country to the US. But was there any differences there? And I'm, I'm asking this really, if someone listening has got a similar, whether they're from the US or somewhere else, and they can go to a country where it's same language, different culture, or completely different language and culture, were there any differences in that? Or actually, because of your Spanish skills, it, it was much of a muchness? No, I mean, if, you, you, kind of the Spanish in Mexico is very different from the Spanish. In, I mean, Spanish in any different country is very different from one another, but, but Spanish in Spain is particularly different from Spanish and Latin America. I, I, I probably got past the doing business in a foreign language thing when I worked at Cemex in the earlier years and a company just before Cemex because that had all been in Spanish as well. So I think that wasn't the, the big challenge when I came to Spain. Spain was probably the first time we kind of moved to, whereas my, my work with in a different language was in Houston, which was my home. So it was the first experience of kind of, okay, I'm now moving abroad to take up a job. So that was kind of lots of different stuff. But the the language thing at that point probably was less of an issue because I'd kind of passed that hurdle, if you will. So maybe then, and sort of a different tact on the BMC piece, you mentioned you, you went to, as part of the team to grow the business. And you can tell me sort of what level you were within that team. But I'd love to know what that phase was like and actually the sort of steps that you and the team took, because I hear of a lot of consulting firms moving country and with varying degrees of success. And I'm always fascinated for people who've done it. Actually, how did you land and expand, as it were, in Europe? That's quite a big, big goal. Yeah, I mean, so BMC already had a professional services business in Europe. What they were trying to do was kind of expand out. It was, But it was very focused, I'd say, on the kind of implementation of specific software projects. So, And what they were trying to do was take, it was build out services that were kind of doing all those things up creating a, a broader package of services that they could provide to to customers so it wasn't we, it wasn't a greenfield site if you will and my role was really to kind of bring specific kind of project experience that we had done in the states over into the european practices so although it was based in spain there was time you know in holland and in france kind of all over all over europe and it was really you trying to help those local teams who'd been very used to kind of, I'm going to implement this bit, kind of talk in a different language, frame things differently for clients, show experience from elsewhere that they could. Probably not that dissimilar to what we do in, you know, selling and talking to customers about what we do now, but it was trying to help them broaden out the conversations from a very kind of niche software thing to a wider, how can we work with you as a partner type of conversation. And I realize, and I should ask this, because you, you say that as someone who obviously has become and was competent at selling, like, starting in sales, I mean, how did that help? And what are some of those skills, particularly for people who are listening who may have started in the consulting space, that actually you having had those couple of years in sales, you might tell me six months in teaching was more valuable, but what are some of those skills that helped you do that? Because I think implicit in your answer is, a, yeah, is an understanding and an approach to selling. And I'd love to know what you learned that maybe others can go and learn through other means in their career. Yeah, I mean, I think that, so I'm, I wouldn't call myself a natural salesperson, which might sound a bit, because you kind of have to do lots of selling if you're going to, going to have a career in consulting. I think what I, it was probably the company I was at just prior to Semex, um, which was a very early kind of pure sales, sales role. I found it quite intimidating, quite scary, if I will, just picking up the phone to somebody and, you know, and I was doing kind of what, what I would call inside sales. So I wasn't out on the road. I was, it was telephone based stuff. And, Getting comfortable having conversations with people you don't know about stuff they might or might not want. And, but then kind of realizing from there that actually you build relationships and sales are ultimately about, you know, relationships. And I built some fantastic, you know, got to be 
really quite good friends with people I never met in person, but, you know, would do business with almost every day. But that, you know, I had some good bosses who helped me overcome concern about picking up the phone to people and being comfortable just having a conversation and following up on something that they'd asked you to quote for and some of that stuff that is what you have to do. But particularly, you know, I'm a bit of an introvert. And if that's not what comes naturally to you from a personality standpoint, I think learning how to do that with confidence, learning that, you know, sometimes they'll say yes and sometimes they'll say no. And that's kind of fine either way because that's the way life goes is is a skill that you you kind of have to develop to be able to then withstand the, the, the yeses and nos that will come later in a life in selling. And you mentioned those bosses. I'd, I'd love to know what were the bits of advice that stuck with you? What was it that helped you overcome those, those initial concerns and challenges? There was, I worked for a guy named Steve at a company called Atlas Industrial Supply. It was just before I went to Semex. And I, I don't know that there's any specific advice, but like he just wouldn't let me get away with not doing stuff, right? And he supported me and he coached me, but it was like, you know, you knew that if Steve asked you to do something, you kind of needed to do it. But, and so you did it because you, he was a great boss. You didn't want to let him down but he didn't make it easy for you because he wanted you, you know, I'm sure he could kind of see I was a bit petrified about certain things. And he just, you know, kind of forced me to overcome some of that stuff, which sometimes you need in life at, at an early stage to build skills that you you don't necessarily gain through university. You get them in life, if you will. No, I can completely agree. And maybe then it's more around you. And you mentioned, you know, you're more of an introvert type personality and and i think again sales is something people assume it has to be the sort of wolf of wall street you know loud suit table banging or, or chest thumping how did you get yourself comfortable with doing it and, and particularly for anyone listening how can they get themselves comfortable with doing the same because we may not have cold calling in the same respect but frankly dropping someone a message on linkedin is the same type of approach so yeah how did you get yourself comfortable and and what do you tell others who say john i'm, I'm introverted i can't do this I mean, we've worked a lot on that in Channel 3 in the last few years. And I think when you can get in your head, there's a couple of things you've got to get in your head. One is that, at least in our line of business, sales is really about relationships. And sometimes those are relationships that you have. Sometimes those are relationships that you'll build and they won't lead to anything for years and years and years. And eventually they will. Sometimes they won't ever lead to anything, but they might point to something else that does. But ultimately, it's the kind of people buy from people thing that that I think is you do have to get your head round. I think for me, then there's something about like, I've been my most effective when I really believe in what I'm trying to sell and feel like I've got examples that are either my own or from people I, I respect of kind of, we have helped somebody solve this problem that I can see that you've got. And I actually really think that we can make a difference for you. Because I think if you realize that it's kind of people talking to people and you really believe in what you're trying to do, then that's half the battle. And I think, I guess I'd say the final thing is sometimes people will say no. And sometimes that will feel grossly unfair. <laughs> and sometimes it'll have had something to do with what you've done and sometimes it won't. And you just have to be able to, t and it doesn't mean if somebody says no, you're not deeply disappointed or frustrated or angry or whatever the, the emotions might be. But sometimes people will say no. And sometimes the people who said no will come back later and say yes. And so just kind of pick yourself back up and it doesn't make you a bad person or doesn't mean you failed. It just means sometimes people say no. And I think for me, at least that ability to kind of be confident in what I'm doing, be comfortable talking to people and recognizing that sometimes you're not going to win, let you get through the kind of knocks and, and highs of life and in, in sales, if you will. 
I, I think some really good advice, John, and I, I won't repeat it because I think you did a great job there, but I will pick up on, and if this is the secret source you can't share, stop me, but you mentioned you've been doing a lot with your team around this. And I, I'd love to know, because we have a lot of listeners like yourself running consulting firms, sort of what are some of those things you've done and what's been most effective to, I guess, get the team to share that point of view? So we worked with a company called WRP that I think is really, really good at sales training. And they come at it from very much, you know, the focus that they have is on sales mindset and the client sales journey you need to take people through in a consulting environment. And I think the biggest challenge for us was, you know, we, we had a relatively small group of people doing most of the selling in Channel 3. And this was, this was you know, several years ago and things have moved on a lot since then. But And beyond that group of people, most of the people who you could see as a natural kind of wider extension of the sales team, some of those people are really uncomfortable even with the idea of selling. They're great delivery people, love doing that, love solving client problems, but don't ask me to sell because sales is a kind of dirty word. And you see that in consulting, you see it in other places. But So I think the biggest benefit from the work we did with WRP and that we've continued to do ourselves is getting people comfortable with actually sales is about building a relationship with somebody who's got a problem that you can genuinely help them solve and that they probably won't help solving or otherwise they wouldn't be talking to you and finding a way to, to, to shape and do that with them. And I think the more comfortable people get with that, the more effective they can be because they realize like what they're doing naturally, which is helping people solve problems, working with people with whom they enjoy their company, it kind of comes naturally. So I, th- I think that that just kind of overcoming some of the fear of it has been one of the biggest things for us. And there's been some process stuff and some ways of working that we've also developed. But I think that mindset shift was the biggest benefit that we've had. It is fascinating to hear. And knowing in myself and, and others that I know closely, it, it is that mindset piece, the, you know, this book on book on sort of how to sell, you know, sort of, is it the challenger sale, which method do you use? But ultimately, it's like you said, if you understand the mindset around you're helping people and I think get over the concern that your personal value is linked to the number of yeses, because actually that can be just as bad if you're just going for yes. You can often compromise yourself or your quality or your price or whatever it is. But I think you're spot on. Just that mindset shift is is a really key one and probably one that was quite actually good to learn that young because you don't know any better. It stuck. I, I had very similar when I launched my estate agency business. Didn't work out. I wasn't a good estate agent, but cold calling people at seven at night is a is a humbling experience, John. You know, there's only once you've been told to f off a few times, you get you get immune to it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I think fast forwarding a bit and you know, nicely with our, our stages. I think I think we might be in the third stage now, but correct me if I, if I'm wrong because I I'm really keen to get your perspective on the Hedra journey, and I, I'll let you kind of talk about. Yeah, you you mentioned it was quite for yourself, quite a pivotal moment. You you took on PL responsibility, you were managing teams. And I want to dive into that, but I, I want to start with culture. And the only reason for this is I've obviously had former colleagues. I have you know Richard Gould, who actually introduced us, had Mark Campbell. You all work together. There is the, you know, I'm sure you don't call it this, but the sort of Hedra Mafia, as it were. And I'd love to get your take on, you know, starting with the culture. What was it that made that experience so unique? Because it's the thing that everyone I've met from there seems to say about the place. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll say alumni rather than mafia, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was, there was something about that moment in time. And it was, I mean, it was kind of five years probably of the, of the core time when all of us kind of came into the business and before, before he just sold to Michelle. It was probably two things. We were a group of people who, we're trying to build something that we're quite excited about 
you know, and doing it with people whose company we enjoyed for the most part, let's say. And, you know, I, I was never a big kind of, never been a big kind of corporate event rah-rah person particularly, but I, I remember always, I, I would really look forward to the Christmas dues at Hedra because it was, I was, I was working on a project and I was spending most of my time in Solihull during the week. So I didn't actually catch up face to face with people that often, but those kind of in-person events were just, a, you know, you look forward to it because you look forward to being with people you really like. So there, there was something about what we were doing and the people we were doing it with. And then, I, you know, it felt successful. There were probably elements to the post Hedra Mouchelle days where we kind of all rallied around each other through, through some, some of that, that few years as well, that we've just, not all, but, you know, lots of those people are still, you know, really good friends and there's still, you know, an annual kind of drinks thing and, and people connected to bit, you know, if we could, if I can create something like that or be a part of creating something like that in channel three, I think you'd be hugely proud of that because whatever we did and, you know, the guys who were leading that business created the conditions for us to be able to do that. It was just a really special moment for us that we had a lot of fun doing. So a changing tack on, on the Hedra story, because in terms of your journey, you mentioned that was the first time you were leading teams and taking on P&L. And they probably didn't, you can tell me if they came together or not, but I'd be interested in actually sort of what were the key sort of learnings you had in that journey? And what were, if any, the challenges? Because actually, those are two quite pivotal steps in someone's consulting career, you know, going from a consultant to managing a team, and also then going from someone who manages a team to actually being responsible for, do we make money or not? Those are two really big shifts. And I'd love to understand, actually, how you found them and kind of take them step by step, take them together. What were those big things you found you had to upskill quickly? What were some of those big challenges? And you know, what advice would you give to others approaching them? I think on the P&L side, you just, our work with the National Program for IT was kind of like a 10-year, 10 million pound a year program. So I mean, it's, you know, for business of, of our size was massive. You know, we went from, you know, a team of five of us working on the bid for that to a team of 50 people deployed within a matter of weeks. It was, it was, it was massive. So you just kind of, you very quickly have to learn what matters in terms of utilization of people and cost rate for people. And, and, you know, there's some kind of complicated revenue recognition stuff that we needed to do with that. And I didn't have a clue what revenue recognition even was, much less how to manage it. And so, you know, it was one of those, you're given the opportunity to step up and do something. So you take the opportunity, but there was, you kind of need to fairly quickly learn what you don't know and surround yourself with people who can help you learn those things. And Andrew Hebb, who was our CFO in, in Hedra, was really great, you know, very, very experienced finance professional who was incredibly generous with his time with me, with anybody to kind of help understand, you know, what what's commercially and financially going to make a difference in terms of the way you run the business. So, you know, it's fortunate to have people around like Andrew, like Linton Barker, who is our chairman, you know, to kind of coach you through how do you step up and run a business within a business, if you will. And I think probably similar on the, on the people side, you know, it wasn't from day one that I had responsibility for that whole team, but I was given the chance to take on bigger and bigger pieces of it. And as some of the people who had 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 the formal leadership roles within that account for us began to want to step away. And I was kind of given the opportunity to step up and, and I I don't know, I guess you kind of learn to, there's a, there's an interesting thing when you're, when you're stepping from a slightly more junior role to a more senior role in the same business where you've got to kind of assume a role that hasn't been what people are used to be to you being in that I needed to go through. And that's about, uh, I don't know what, what are the learnings? It's just, 
Well, maybe just because I'm fascinated by what you've just touched on. What was that shift you felt you needed to make? And then how did you make it so that people perceived you, but also you were able to do your job at that more senior level? I think that is as much about how the person stepping out of this more senior role helps to position you or not into that, creates the ability for you to cut. You've got to step up, but they've also got to kind of step out a bit and allow you to step away. And I was fortunate that Crew Desire, who's, you know, you could add her to your list of, of, of ex-Hedra people to, to talk to. Crew's been a great, kind of was a great boss and mentor over the years. And I think she she did a particularly good job of kind of stepping out of both in terms of title and in what she was doing, the role that she had in leading that team and kind of allowing me to gradually come into it. It's not something that happens overnight. And it is something that you got to behave slightly differently because there are different expectations, but nor can you kind of suddenly change who you are and, oh, I'm now the big boss kind of thing because that doesn't fly with people, especially in this line of work. So I think I think that that kind of transition, and you see that, you know, that's not just at that point in Hedra. Anytime somebody's trying to step into a new role, that's particularly where they're then going to start managing people or leading people who might have been peers to theirs before. It's a, it's a tricky transition to make, and it's really helped by the people who sit above you who create the environment in which you can do that more successfully. So firstly, we will talk about crew and as a future guest, definitely. It wasn't the answer I was expecting. So I want to dig in for anyone, you know, take someone of your level, take someone leading a program, actually, how can they do that in the right way to set their successor up for success? And actually, what can you know, take maybe what you did? How can the person who will be taking that role start those conversations who you know who drives it and how do you make that success between you i suppose there's the it depends on if so my situation it was you know crew was never going to want to take that most senior role within the account forever so it wasn't like i didn't need to knock on her door and say oh by the way i'd like to have your job <laughs> yeah that was that was kind of there was a bit of a plan around that so so there was no awkwardness about about that i and i've not i don't think i've been in a situation where i kind of wanted something that involved kind of knocking somebody else. <laughs> so, so, but I think you just have to think about the transition. I'd say the same thing to people in our own business, you know, rightly or wrongly, we put people in boxes. We kind of have people in roles that we think of them and we have people in kind of things that we associate them with doing. And so if you, if you want to do something different, you've kind of almost got to start doing those things differently. So I think you've got to work with the person who's, who's going to be creating the space for you to start doing some of what they're already doing. They've got to give you the space to do that and to let you do it. And sometimes you'll succeed and sometimes you won't. And I should probably take some of my own medicine on this. I'll, I'll make myself a note to those who are listening who work with me now. Yes, I hear what I'm saying. You can remind me of that. But I think I think it, I think it's a kind of partnership thing. And then I think it's something about really, at least in terms of my style, you know, as you start to interact differently with people with whom you've been peers in the past, kind of not letting that go to your head and and really being respectful of kind of where you've come from, what they're trying to do, because you're going to need at some point do the same thing for them and step aside so that they can take on those roles. I think it takes a real, you've got to be prepared to let other people do things and step away from what you might know and love doing, because otherwise people can't come up through the ranks, if you will. Yeah, that that point of you need to give things away. I think so often I I see people who are potentially held back by holding on to. You know, I like doing that thing, so I'm going to hold on to it. And actually, like you say, maybe that that's great when you were level X, but when you want to be level Y, you you need to give that away. And just because you mentioned the peer element, it's actually something I don't think I've ever talked about on this podcast. So you're going to be the first, and I'm interested in digging into it because I think I I left consulting at 
senior consultant. So in in our, so the firm I was in in Beringa, it was kind of you weren't quite leading teams yet, so this might not be a, as much of an issue. But you know, personally, and this is very much on me, not the firm. There was always that sense to your point of peers is there's a little bit of competition because as you climb a pyramid, it gets narrower and maybe I'll uh, you take it as how you did it or the advice you give to others sort of how can people navigate that as they do progress so that you know yeah if there were five of you at level x now you're the top of that pyramid how can you balance that so you don't seem like you've kind of you've got snobby and are above them but equally you're not trying to fit in and and be friends with them and not as in not be friends with them but sort of trying to stay at that level and appease that group for want of being seen in a different way how do you balance what i guess is that inherent tension I suppose you kind of focus on doing the next job that's there for you to do. Being prepared to kind of keep doing elements of the the thing you used to do that you were good at, because actually sometimes either it needs to be done or you can kind of coach somebody to do that. But I, I just think it's how do you approach it with a degree of humility and kind of not having it seem like, oh, I saw this as competition and I've won. You know, it's kind of you've done what's right for you and others will do that for themselves in their own time or not, if that's not what they aspire to. But I think as long as everybody kind of stays friends and respectful of each other, then that's that's probably the best you can hope for. And it's, sometimes it'll be fine and smooth and sometimes it won't. But that's kind of the way career progression goes, I suppose. Yeah, very, very true. And and maybe then slightly sort of just one other question on this, you know, your experience, because you made the point you d- you didn't go from running a team of 5 to 50 overnight but was there a at any point in that growth journey where actually you found you've heard me talk on the show before about inflection points you know was there a number that made you think well that's the difference you know managing a team of 5 might be the same as 10 but when you get to 20 bloody hell it's a different thing was there any point in that or anything you, you know, for others listening you say that's the real area you might have to focus on shifting your perspective shifting your approach it was probably more the kind of when Hydra had been bought by Michelle and I, so I was the managing director of, of a joint venture that Michelle had with Oldham Council. And we probably had 400 staff in that. Yeah, so that, and that, that partnership had been running for about a year, struggling a bit. So that's why the team at Michelle asked me to go up and um, try to get back on track, really. And it was the first time certainly I'd had anything like that quantity of people. It was not a consulting gig. I think there were lots of people who thought, how on earth is this guy who's been a consultant his whole life kind of drawing pretty PowerPoint going to actually know how to run a business? And um, so it was it was a really different experience. But when you've got, you know, 400 people and by the time I then took on a subsequent JV and so it was kind of double that by the time I finished with, with Michelle, yeah, that's a whole different scale. And I think that's where you realize you have to have a team of people around you and you have to let them do some stuff. And that doesn't mean you never kind of dip in a couple of levels down, but you can't run that all. You've got to have people around you who can run those teams and you've got to step away from some of the detail of it hard as that might be for you if you're a bit of a control freak and a bit of a detail person but that that was probably the biggest inflection point it's probably also the point where i kind of realized looking back on that not necessarily the michelle element but the having the chance to lead a business like that as i had left kpmg and thought about what i really enjoyed doing that was a key point inflection point both in terms of what i had to learn how to do and give up doing because the quantity but also learning what i really really liked to do and probably wanted to do more of i want to come on to that in a minute because it was i had a note from our first conversation i want to ask about exactly what you very kindly teed me up for john but i just so i don't lose it and probably the last question on that kind of development journey yeah that oldham role you mentioned the sort of actually needing the leadership team underneath you the last question would probably be actually was there any difference in running a a client team versus a consulting team and actually how did you find that shift because 
I think a lot of people you know, will climb in consulting, as the podcast called, at some point move. I always think that's actually quite a shift going from a certain type of person in consulting to, frankly, a much broader type of people in industry. Was there anything in that side of it that took you by surprise or you had to learn? Or was actually that just you know, having worked in the industries you had, that was par for the course? It was a very different kind of business. I mean, you were, it, it was a business that was running IT for the council, running, you know, council tax collection and, and benefits payments and and housing stuff and property. So it was this mixed bag of of council services that had been all kind of tupied into this joint venture so that the, the JV could try to bring improvement and transformation to those services. So it was it was run as opposed to consult. And I think that that day-to-day running of services is it's a different thing and it employs different kinds of people and it employs, you know, some really skilled managers and some really skilled highways technicians and things that, you know, who, who've never been near a PowerPoint slide and that's really good because they're doing some proper work. Yeah. So it's, it was just a very, very diverse group of people and you've got to be able to tailor yourself to them and kind of meet them where they are. And again, I come back to kind of just show them you're a really real person, particularly if they think, oh, well, you've spent your whole life in consulting and you're a guy in a suit. What are you possibly going to bring to us? I think what you can bring is trying to, you know, they had lots of frustrations about the way services have been run for many years that they wanted to change. It was kind of like, well, let me help you unlock the things that will enable you to do perhaps the things that you've been wanting to do, but for whatever reason, haven't been able to. But it's it's a very different business to do project-based things versus kind of running something for a number of years. Implicit in that, and you can tell me if this is right or wrong, you, what you just described is almost to our selling conversation. It feels like there is a, a selling and ultimately understand what the people in the business need and give it to them, which while I don't think is not there in consulting, I suspect it's more widely known in consulting. Whereas like you say, in that industry role, you need to take the time to learn what people want, how you can help them and, and take them on that journey. Am I inferring right or am I over overreaching? Maybe overreaching a bit. I mean, ultimately, I think people are people. The kind of business they're in, the kind of things they might need may, may be different. But I think, yeah, for the most part, people want to feel, people want to rock up at work and feel like they're doing something that is doing some good for somebody, whoever that somebody might be. They feel successful. They feel heard about the things that matter to them, whatever those might be. And they feel like somebody's kind of respectful of what they're saying and and trying to listen and enable them. Nobody rocks up at work and wants to kind of do a bad job or disappoint people for the most part. Yeah. And and I think that that's, if you can, even if you get frustrated with that, most people are doing the best they possibly can. So if it's, if it's working great, how do you do more of it? If it's not, then how do you help them? Because they're all trying to do their best, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point, John. And very often as well, it's processes or systems that are blocking people, not people. I, I have to dig out the name of the book, but it's written by a of consultancy called Vanguard, but it's sort of systems thinking in essence, which is you know, for anyone who doesn't know is think about the process, the system, and fix that before you fix people. Because, like you say, ninety nine point nine nine percent of people want to do a great job, and it's it's enabling them to do that. And I'm going to go back to it because I I think again you've teed me up for it quite nicely there because you talked about you know previously, and I had a note around you, know, you had a catch up with a friend where they said describe what you do want to do not what you don't want to do and you might just tell me it's have a job where you can do everything you've just described but i'd love if you could just place a bit more context around why you were getting that advice and actually what impact it had on you yes yeah, so that was several years 
later. That was after I was kind of in the process of, of leaving KPMG and thinking about what I wanted to do next. And just had dinner one evening with a guy who'd kind of been a mentor and friend over the years. And I was really, really good at articulating, well, I know I don't want to do this and I don't want to do that. And I don't want to go back into this kind of big consulting thing. And that. And he was like, yeah, that's really all interesting job. But what is it you actually do want to do? And I think that's where I maybe either allowed or forced myself to think about, well, what have I really enjoyed most? And therefore, what do I want to to do more of as I, as I go forward. And that's where I kind of began to realize, you know, what I really enjoy doing is, is leading a business. It's building a team of people. It's not being in a full-time sales role and being really honest with myself about, you know, kind of with myself, what do I like doing? What kind of builds my energy? What takes away from that? Because I can tell you what, if you're in a job where kind of you're doing stuff that saps your energy, then, you know, sometimes that's necessary because that's just life, but it's not, the road to a really happy, fulfilled, successful career. You might be successful, but it's not going to make you really want to spring out of bed in the morning. And I think that it can be really easy on whatever path you're on to kind of get, you keep doing what you've been doing without stopping to think, well, of that, of that stuff I've been doing that I've been successful at, what elements of it have I really enjoyed and how can I shape the next thing I do so that it builds on what I really enjoy and minimizes the stuff that, that, that I don't. And I think Andy's, you know, advice to me then was, was quite right, like kind of focus on what you do and make that happen as opposed to having your laundry list of um, things you don't want to do. Well, I, I think it's great advice. And we've all been there of, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. I There might not be a sort of stepped answer to this and it might have just been a, a stage of life thing, but how did you hold almost hold that mirror up to yourself? Because I think it's very easy and you know, we're all the easiest person to fool. And particularly in our career, I always think in consulting, for instance, an interesting inflection point is that kind of director level when you, you've got quite far, you know, the next step is the big one, but many people get stuck in this kind of you know, no man's land of never making it. But it's, I can imagine in that position, it's very easy to say, well, get there, you know, one year, one year, one year. How, how did you hold that mirror up to yourself to say, actually, I do like this. I don't like that. Realistically, I might never do that. Realistically, I could love that. I don't know that I did very well at the time, if I'm honest. I think when you're in, whether it's a big firm or a small firm, when you've kind of got yourself on the, I'm progressing and I'm on a partner track thing, it's almost like kind of the goal becomes the, 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 the future title, the partner title, whatever that might be, becomes the thing that you're going for as opposed to the job that that could mean, if you will. And I'm not sure that I was ever particularly rigorous. My, my, my ambition became to make partner at KPMG, not necessarily to make partner at KPMG so I can do X, Y, and Z, if you will. And so, so I think it's, but you can, you can easily find yourself on that, that kind of treadmill, if you will. That was my experience. I don't know, you know, that might be different from somebody who's kind of, I'm stuck at director and can't quite, quite get there, which is a different experience. So I'm not sure that I did hold, uh, it probably wasn't until after I was leaving that I really reflected on that, gave myself some time. You know, I did some contract work for a while that kind of I really, really enjoyed, absolutely loved. I did some work in, with the health system in Jersey and the Channel Islands. That There's worse places to be based for a, a uh, period was, of time, it, isn't there? Yeah, it was great. It was it's a lovely place. It's a place I'd done some work before, great group of people, but it gave me at a point when I kind of needed to keep things ticking over career-wise, but have some some time to think about what I really, really wanted to do the perfect opportunity for that. And I think it was at that point where it was, it was Andy, the chat that I had with Andy over dinner was in Jersey because he was work, doing some work down there as well. So it was, it was then that period of reflection more after the fact than it was 
being deliberate about it. And I think if I if I had it to do over again, I mean, all the experiences, some experiences are great, some are some are some are kind of less so, but they all build to where you are ultimately. So I'm not sure I'd necessarily have done anything differently. But looking back, yeah, I don't think I did what you said, which is that really thinking hard whether it was in KPMG or anywhere along the line, kind of where's the next step going to be and what's it going to take me to? Yeah, well, I think implicit in what you're saying is interesting. I, I did very similar in in my career, albeit earlier in terms of that contracting break, for want of a better word. And I think there's something, like you say, in giving yourself time and time is not a 20-minute exercise. You know, I, sometimes, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone, you know, you, you look for, okay, John will tell me to do a one-hour exercise with these four boxes and I'll ask these questions. But actually giving yourself that space to just absorb, acknowledge things. I think it can be quite hard when you are in a full-on career role, you don't have time to look up. And actually, it's interesting hearing that point in time was when you did have that space. And maybe that's something for others listening of that kind of, if you're not 100% happy, there's nothing bad with taking almost a pit stop. And you know, as everyone listening to this knows, contracting is not a particularly bad pit stop to be in. But just giving yourself that space, I don't know if that would sort of you know, resonate with your, yeah, your experience. So. And I think that, you know, there's always bills to pay and responsibilities to look after and all that. So you've got to, you've got to balance what you might want to do with what, with what you might need to do at a particular point in time. But I do think there's, you know, you've always got a set of skills and, and you've, you know, particularly as you get to be a more senior, it's, it's unlikely if you give yourself a bit of time, you won't then be able to find something else to do, you know? And, and, and so I think just, being confident in your your ability to to keep yourself fed and watered, but in doing that, also give yourself some time to to think about what's really really going to be make you fulfilled and happy in the next stage is is an important thing to do if if that is a kind of situation you find. And some people aren't like that; they're kind of on the on the hamster wheel, and they're very happy on the hamster wheel. And the hamster wheel takes them to exactly where they want to be. But um, but kind of if it doesn't then there's no harm in kind of saying well what i really want to do to feel like i kind of do wake up with a spring in my step every day yeah and i think it's a question a lot of people are asking more since i think the pandemic forced people to stop you know one way or another and i i hear just people i know more and more asking these sort of questions and i know i said i won't ask for the four questions and exercise but i'm going to anyway john if if someone asks you that or you go for dinner with them how do you try and advise them? Is it give yourself headspace, go and do a, another role, or is there a resource, a book, a, you know, something that you find yourself pointing people to in that respect? Not really. I think it's like, what do you properly enjoy doing, and what do because you, you do need to be clear on what you don't like doing. <laughs> yeah, even if you, even if you can overplay that, what do you really like doing, and what are you really not, and how can you find things then that really play up what you enjoy doing, whether that's the sector you're in or the kind of work you're doing, and because I just think people who who are fortunate enough to find themselves doing something that they that they genuinely enjoy just you know probably do better in that and have more fun along the way. I, well, I would certainly agree. Doing what I do now versus things I've done in the past, um, least of all being an estate agent. But it taught me to cold call, John. So oh, you, there you go. I have to try and think. I think it was Andy Denton. He's the CEO of Alpha Systems who was on this show. I think he he said it's sort of as as long as you learn from it, it's good and you know, good or bad experience. As long yeah, as you I learn agree. from it, I agree. And yeah, so learning to be an estate agent was a good experience for what it taught me. And I think bringing us to because you you said obviously you know you've kind of found your passion in the Channel Three role and to the Hedra alumni, as we're now calling them, you, you mentioned that's how it came about. And I, again, I think we touched on the entry to consulting, which is always interesting. But 
I also find sort of the level you're at now very interesting because there's not hundreds of boutique consulting firms. And I don't think you just go on LinkedIn and find a CEO role. So I'd, I'd love to know, actually, how did the role here come about? And how did you decide it was going to be the thing that ticked the boxes that we just talked about? Well, you say you don't go on LinkedIn and find a CEO role. Funnily enough, you're now going to tell me that's what happened, well, aren't you? So the team at Channel 3 reached out to me and they, they never saw my CV or they only ever saw my LinkedIn profile, but they saw a better LinkedIn profile because I had sorted it out because it was focused on what I did want to do, not what I didn't want to do. So yeah, it was a cold outreach. They were looking. So the guys who had built the business were looking to transition out and they were really, and, and so I got kind of a call from their recruitment team and would you be interested in a conversation? And I thought this could be either really interesting or really not. And, and as it happens, it was kind of exactly the kind of opportunity that as I had worked out what I wanted to do, I thought would be, would be great. It was kind of opportunity to business in a sector that I know something about and had worked in. So I think it could bring experience that was relevant to the business. In a business that was going to go on a journey that was not dissimilar to, or had the potential to not be dissimilar to what Hedra had done. So I think I had leadership skills, sector skills, and point in the business's journey skills that were all relevant to Hedra that kind of were the perfect mix for what I wanted to do and what they needed done. So, but it was very much about what they found on LinkedIn. So, so LinkedIn works in that regard. So. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, as, as someone who does marketing for consulting firms and says it a lot, it's nice to hear you, you, you share the benefits of it as well. And I, I think it talks a lot to the conversation we actually just had around that knowing what you want, you made that point of actually you dressed, not dressed your LinkedIn up, but you know, you, you directed it to what you want and that bore fruit, bared fruit. And I think that's something so many people miss of like you say, your online presence is a presence and people may find you. Are you putting out into the world what you want to get back? Because you could have very easily not done that exercise and yeah. said, I do not want to be a big consultant. I do not want to do this. <laughs> I'm not sure that's what it said before, but it probably wasn't. Oh. <laughs> and to your point around having been on that journey with Hedra, I think that MBO piece, and obviously you know, I'll, I'll let you talk about it, is, is quite interesting because it's not as common in the consulting space. You know, funnily enough, Richard, who we both know, I know, did it at Morehouse. But I'd love to know that journey you went on and, and maybe you start from the beginning, you know, you got that LinkedIn message. Were you brought in with a remit of, look, we are looking towards an MBO and you are the leadership uh, team? Not an MBO, but an exit. Okay. So maybe start there and because you mentioned it was to an exit. How did it come to an MBO and just sort of how did that work through? Because we hear so often of the sort of trade sale type acquisition and much less of that MBO journey. I'd just love to know, how did that journey play out? Again, in a kind of non-linear fashion, <laughs> most of it. So, so Reese Hefford, who's a, the chief executive, one of the founders, when he and I had a first conversation, you know, he said they were looking to exit the business. I think, you know, I was kind of like, well, why now? Because the business is in this great place and has, you know, but they were, they were really clear. And we can talk more about that later about you know, what they wanted to do, what they had done, wh why they were prepared to leave. So it was a very clear remit of we're looking for somebody who can help us have an exit from the business. I think they kind of had assumed it would be a trade sale because that's kind of, they'd been approached by some potential trade buyers previously. I think that just kind of like in their head, that's what would happen. And I was kind of open to that or open to other routes. Um, I think as I got to know the business more, and particularly once I had started, 
I felt pretty strongly that business wasn't really ready for a trade sale for, for lots of different reasons. But I just think there's a kind of degree of scale and maturity and process and, and team that need to be in place to execute an effective, a successful trade sale. I didn't feel like we were quite there. And ju- just in terms of time and place, was that during the interview process? Was that once no, you were that, in? Well, it was probably, no, I think that was, so I started talking to them in October of 17, it would have been, if I, no, October of 18. I started in May of 19. So, you know, the, the interview conversations took place over the course of about six months because, you know, there's lots of stuff they wanted to do in terms of getting to know me, lots I wanted to do. I had commitments in Jersey until kind of Easter of 19 anyway. So there, it was protracted but by design, if you will. So I think that kind of realization that it wasn't really ready for trade probably happened most when I was in. And I, so they had been a approached by a potential trade buyer just prior to my joining. So there were kind of, there was a live conversation with a potential acquirer. And I just, you could kind of see in the line of questioning about, you know, it wasn't that the business didn't have a fantastic track record or great people because it did. And there were, there were reasons that I was attracted to joining the business, but you know, you could see that what a trade buyer was looking for was a kind of history of certain kind of continuity around financials and repeatability and stuff that we just weren't there yet. And that's not because we'd done anything wrong. It's just because that's where the business was. There was a whole series of kind of sets of information that, you know, a trade buyer expects to see in place. And it just, there's a scale that a trade buyer expects because then, you know, they want to know what they're buying and, and, and that I just didn't think we were ready for. And as those conversations with that particular suitor then kind of, you know, both the founders and, and the potential acquirer decided it wasn't quite the right time. I guess that kind of reinforced my view of what I thought was probably the case, kind of was the case. And it wasn't in a kind of, I told you so way. It was just kind of just reinforced. I think both their view and mine, but it's the thing that opened up then the ability to have the, well, if you want to exit and we're not quite ready for trade, what is the other route? And the only, you know, the other feasible route on that was a management buyout, which is, which is the path we eventually took. But it kind of, opened up the route to that conversation that was probably easier because we kind of collectively recognized we weren't quite ready. It's a really interesting sort of, I think, lead into many more questions, John, and, and maybe just there where you ended the story. How did you and the management team get to the point where you were going to have that conversation? And I say this again, it, it might not work like that. Did you and the you know, now leadership team discuss and then go to the founders? Was it more you and the founders around the board table say, well, actually, this could be an option. Should we explore it? Because I'm sure there's listeners who are in a similar position, either by design, like you were being brought in, or just through you know natural evolution of the firm. How did you start those conversations so that it was a positive conversation that led to ultimately the outcome you got? I mean, it was, it was mainly recent me talking initially. And it was, it was fairly straightforward because we were, you know, I was in the fortunate position where I had been brought in to create, you know, with the remit of creating an exit event for them. So it wasn't like a kind of, oh, by the way, could you go off and do something else so I could buy your business kind of, kind of conversation that might be a different one to have and to, to create an entry point to. It was pretty natural, you know, and it, and it probably started from conversations that said, look, that hasn't quite gone as we thought it would. Let's explore a different route. I've been talking to to Richard Gould, who who had had I've worked with at Hedra and, and and had taken Morehouse through through an MBO out of BT a number of years early. So I was fortunate to have a kind of friend and mentor who could say, "Well, you need yourself a really good corporate finance advisor." Well, what's one of those? Well, okay, here's you know, let me introduce you to somebody. You know, so, and Richard was good at having conversations in the early days with both Reese and me about kind of what was his experience 
introducing us to people. So, so it really felt like, at least in the early stages of that, Reese and I were in that conversation together. And we, so we had aims that were aligned, although the endpoint of that for both of us would be very different. We were kind of aligned in what we were trying to, to achieve. And I think from, so it was that kind of early conceptual, is this something you guys would be willing to explore? He went and spoke with his other founders and shareholders and they kind of got them comfortable, which then created the space for me to have conversations with the wider team about kind of, would we want to do this? And if we did kind of what might it look like? And, you know, my, yeah, it'll just be a really straightforward conversation. Everybody wanted to be fully up for it was not necessarily the way it came out. We got there in the end, but it was interesting conversations with, with the team because it's, you know, it's a, it's not a small thing to undertake and it's a big responsibility that you're going to have at the other end of it. And I think you kind of don't go into it to it lightly but it was you know to the founders credit they were very good at supporting us being willing to do that um and it was in their interest and it was the route that they were going to have to an exit but they didn't have to do it the way they did and i kind of you know hats off to them for being willing to explore something that wasn't what they originally thought they'd do to your point there of the the conversations like you say nothing in life is ever simple and and particularly i'm sure when there's multiple people and you know financial implications but there's an interesting question in there. You you said earlier that the business wasn't ready for a trade sale. How did you, or, or what did you do to decide it was ready for an MBO, and that you know, in effect, the the business you would be taking on would be one you you wanted to take on? That was probably easier because the, I, it was the business that I had joined not that many months before, and that I joined knowing that something like that, whether it had gone into trade or gone into MBO, over you know, it was going to be a business that the the founding fathers, if you will, not and, and mothers, and we're not going to be part of anymore. And so that was probably less of a challenge because that's kind of what I signed up for and was quite excited about from the outset. Not everybody else in the business who was going to stay had had that kind of concept in mind when they, when they joined. So that was probably what was a bit harder. Lots of people didn't want to, but kind of really wanted to explore the implications of being part of a management buyout and what that would mean for you know, impact on their lives and their families and, and, and the, the kind of toll that that would take because it's, it's hard to lead a business, isn't it? And for anyone listening, what, what does that mean? What, what were some of those decision points that you, you, know, you and your colleagues had to make to decide if it's right? And for anyone listening, what should they be thinking of? Because you, know, you hear the top line things, the numbers, the multiples, but I'm sure that's the, the icing on what, or the tip of what's a very deep iceberg. I think the thing you've got to realize, it is going to be your baby. Yeah, particularly if the if the founders are wanting a clean exit, which ours did, you know, I think it's that realization that, and and when when you have a business, you know, you are the custodian of something that's really special, but that isn't built by magic. That's kind of blood, lots and lots of blood, sweat, and tears, and lots of hours. And it's different when you're employed somewhere, no matter how much you might work, versus you own something the kind of realization of kind of what's a life with private equity going to mean and the kind of, you know, until you kind of know that world and and understand how it works, it can, it can be quite daunting. So I think it's that mindset shift from employee to owner that people needed to be able to get their heads around and different people in the team kind of having different views of how long they wanted to, might want to do that level of work and whether they'd want to, you know, whatever happens with us in terms of a next event be part of that or not. And so, so it was all those things that people needed to grapple with, which were really questions of, if I do this, how is this going to impact my life? And 
less so about the financial side and those things that that comes into play obviously but i think it was it's the realization it's going to be going to be really hard work hopefully a lot of fun along the way and hopefully a kind of hedra type experience in terms of 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 a moment in time in life but it's not going to be easy it's it's a great point john and running my own own much smaller business i I completely get what you're saying and and i think it is key there's a financial element but actually that how it shifts your perspective, how it shifts your priorities, I think is is quite a big thing. And I guess also how how it shifts your responsibility because suddenly there's no one above you. There's, you know, you and the leadership team, while obviously there's a structure, you own the business, you run the business. And that comes with I guess that is a very different place to be than being in the business, as it were. Yeah. And I think I think the thing that the thing that's kind of always on your mind is there's a whole lot of people who've got families and mortgages and holidays and lives that depend on the success of the business and they're entrusting you with their careers they're entrusting you with their livelihood and and it's a real privilege to be kind of to be able to to lead a business and and to do that and grow something but with it comes a great responsibility that is you kind of need to go into with your eyes open because then you're kind of constantly reminding yourself of you know the reason we're working so hard is yes to do great stuff for clients but actually it's for you know all the people who've who've decided to come and work with us and 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 back themselves to 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 help channel three succeed and we've got to back them and that's a massive responsibility that you've got to get your head around that is very different from being an employee somewhere i, I think it's a i think it's a really powerful point i think we should also reflect the you know you mentioned about it being a privilege the, the upside of in some small way you get to enable those things you know the someone buying a house, someone getting married, someone taking maternity or paternity yes. leave. Those are things that you've enabled, your team have enabled as well, which is always nice. We had our first Create Engage wedding last year. That was an exciting oh. thing. So, you know, these these little milestones are really important. And I think probably just because I'm mindful of the time, and, and this might be our last sort of topic, and, and I think flows quite nicely from the story we've just touched on. And this might be jumping back to other elements, but you and I have talked a lot over the you know time we've known each other around culture and just you mentioned, you know, we talked about how fondly you talked about Hedra and how you are wanting to build that culture and are building that culture here. I, in danger of asking a very big question at the end, almost what steps have you taken or the management, you and the management team taken to start to build, assuming there is a slight difference to when you, you took over control and ownership of the business? What steps have you taken to build that culture? And I guess build it in that likeness of a hedra of somewhere that people do feel comfortable and and have those friendships and those relationships. Yeah, and I'd, I'd say you know, you're never going to build something in the likeness of another business because you're not. But I, I think the cultural piece is, is the thing, and it'll be a different culture, it'll be a different experience for us than what that was. I think, you know, we've we've spent a lot of time on values and, you know, we've got a defined set of company values that are around passion and collaboration and, and integrity and diversity. And then thinking about the behaviors that sit below those and what does that mean in terms of how we interact with each other and we we did that as a team that wasn't something that we as a leadership team did we did it as as a whole business and we spent a good bit of time on it and we thought about what's really important to us in terms of the way we want to interact with each other how we want that to manifest itself in terms of the way we act the way we don't act how we carry that into the way we work with our clients and kind of use it to check the things we choose to do and the things we choose not to do, the ways we choose to behave, the ways we choose choose not to behave. And so I think having that grounding, in a, and there are probably other values you could have, but having that kind of grounding in something that anchors us into the way we will 
behave with each other has been really, really important. I think there's also something about just, you know, hiring people that feel like Channel 3 people. And, and that's not to say at all hiring people that are kind of carbon copies of other people. It's actually quite a diverse team in terms of personality and things. And, you know, we don't always agree and very often we don't agree. And But we kind of all come back to a respectfulness and a kind of way of wanting to work and a passion for what we're trying to do that is common across the team, I think. So, so I think that workaround values, there's something about kind of unity of purpose that we've got as well. You know, we're, we're really clear that our business is about trying to improve people's lives and their health and social care experiences through the better use of technology in that sector. That's what we're about. And the thing that kind of wakes that everybody joins the business to be part of doing is centered around that purpose. And, and that, so I think that unity of purpose of kind of why do we do what we do combined with a, a really clear and how do we go about doing that just helps give a foundation that then you can, t- so if you talk to somebody and they're kind of interested in the business, but they're not really passionate about what we're doing, what the purpose is, then kind of, they're probably not right for us. They might not have that experience, but if they want to get that experience as a space, that then they probably are that person. If you've got somebody who's kind of not really a team player and some people aren't as much, you know, that's probably not a, a channel three person. So I think we, we kind of, but then you've got to constantly reinforce that. You've got to constantly try to make sure that you're checking yourselves and you're behaving in the way. And, and you know, we're all guilty of not behaving the way that we aspire to, but being willing to challenge each other. So I think that's the stuff that lays the foundations for. And then it's in, you know, try. it's been difficult over the COVID period, but as we start to get back into more in-person stuff, you know, getting people together, getting people to kind of form those friendships and relationships that mean that they are having time to enjoy each other's company as human beings and not just enjoy each other's company as people doing work in the same business. All those things, you're creating opportunities for people to to do new things, letting them do that, letting some of it work, some of it won't work, bringing in new kind of people who can take us into different directions and letting people kind of spread their wings into things. That All of those things, I think, contribute to an environment where People feel excited, they feel challenged, they feel they can do new stuff, they can do that with people they like, and hopefully that creates the kind of soil in which the flowers can grow. If you <laughs> well, I, th- I think that last one is the quote of the podcast, yeah, John. Really we'll cut that out, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I think there's something in that, and you might just say it's, it's doing more of what you just highlighted, but I think there's something else in the Channel 3 story of, as where you are now in terms of, you know, the business is growing very quickly, you're attracting a lot of new people. How do you continually reinforce that culture because obviously hiring for the right cultural fit is as you highlighted is one main way but then how once people are in how are you focusing or how how are you approaching that to keep maintaining and reinforcing that culture because the more people you add the harder it gets and the quicker you do it the harder it gets i mean we're learning yeah so it's it's we're 50 odd people now that's you know a lot more than it was this time last year. We've probably got 30 more we're going to bring in this year. So it, it, there's a lot of growth and that's that brings with the differences. We've got a really great kind of HR and people team that, you know, people say in, of our joining and induction process that it's kind of better than they've experienced. That's nothing to do with me. That's all down to, to, to Serfell and Jackie and Lucy and Anne and Lisa and other people who are involved in that process of getting people into the business and everybody who's involved in kind of being buddies to someone when they join. So all of that, just trying to be really kind of decent, friendly people. 
And and you've got to kind of work at that and you've got to make time for it. And I think that's, that's one of the things that Sarah and Jackie do so well is just, you know, it's there's structure behind how we try to bring people in and, and make them feel part of things. And, you know, it's it's the the annual Hotel Chocolate Easter kind of box that, that, you know, it's just little things that we try to do that make people remind people that, you know, we're glad they choose to, you know, spend eight hours of their lives with us every day and choose to make channel three the place where they work and 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 build their careers so it's it's lots of stuff it's uh, as we grow the team it will be different things we'll have to do but we're learning but we all you know at, at every partner meeting we spend a good bit of time talking about people and where are people in the team and who's who's happy and who's not and what can we do about it and i think if you if you pay attention to those things then you will figure out what you need to do at a point in time and those things will be different as the business progresses. I think some great examples, and like you say, it's pay attention to it, and you'll you'll figure it out. If and you, you won't don't. always get it right, you know. And sometimes we don't. And I think being willing to say, okay, we've not got that right, and because I think people people will accept that sometimes you get things wrong if you a have the kind of willingness to acknowledge that, and b do something about it. I think it's when stuff's not right and it festers, or you've seen to let it fester, that's more of a problem. Yeah, well, I guess it's that that honesty and openness point, isn't it? If you you have those conversations, you're honest where you've succeeded and and maybe failed. Actually, people are more accepting of it and willing to go on that journey with you. So, John, we are now coming to a bit that I know you will be expecting, having listened to a few of these. And this is this is the last section of our conversation. We've gone through the you know the four phases of your career, and we're now onto the the fifth phase of the interview. And and these are as you know questions I ask every guest. So I won't build it up, but I'm hoping for some good answers. So the first is around books, and quite simply, it's it's what book or books have you found yourself giving or, or reading yourself most, and and why is it? I mean, I'm not a huge reader of kind of management texts, if you will, but I've really enjoyed and got a lot from Jim Collins's work, particularly um, the kind of second edition of Beyond Entrepreneurship, which has been out for several years now. But I, and the reason that I read that a couple of times last year, I think the way it frames a business thinking about purpose and values and what your big next steps on the journey are. I found particularly helpful both for me and for kind of working with the team to setting out what's our strategy going to look like, what are the next few years going to look like. So I think that, I think good to great. I think he's got a style of writing that's that I like. But I think if you're in a position where it's like kind of, I need to set out the stall and set that out, but do it in a way that's kind of collaborative. I just think there's a lot, I found lots in that to learn from and to apply. So I quite enjoyed that. So I, I am also a fan of Jim Collins. I haven't read that book, but as I'm on holiday next week, that will go. go. go it's on, an easy read. Go onto Amazon. I've read Good to Great and also the supplemental flywheel multiple times, mm, um, mm, which I think are very good. And, and like you say, he has a nice style of business learnings, but with scientific backing. And in our world now, there's a lot of business learnings which don't seem to have much backing, scientific or otherwise. So I completely get that. And then my next question is more of a roundup, as as you know, and this could be things we've covered, it could be new things, but you've got three people in front of you. One is just starting their career in consulting, you know, you you back in that conference room. One is four to five years in, manager, whatever's easiest for you. It's that kind of junior, not quite junior, not quite super senior level. They can go and do other things if they want. And one is that person just approaching partner. And and the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each? Yeah, I think for the person just starting, it's, it's be open to new things. Be willing to try, kind of like, accept that whatever 
plan you have for yourself. If if that works out that way, then that's, you know, well done you. <laughs> In my experience, like bears no resemblance to what I might have thought I was going to end up doing. So just kind of, but I wouldn't change any of it. Yeah. So I think that that just kind of be open to new things, be open to things people might ask you to do sometimes because they might have a good reason from experience of thinking actually this would be good for you to do so whether you can see it or not kind of trust that from a leadership perspective a bit and sometimes i just need you to do stuff but by being willing to kind of do stuff that might not be the most exciting thing you've ever done before you kind of show willing so i think just be open try new things get involved because that's that's how you learn i think for the person a few years in it's like what are you really enjoying doing and how can you navigate your way to doing more of that and in those kind of middle years or probably particularly if in a bigger firm that the point where you've got the opportunity to begin to specialize a bit and begin to take a bit of control because you've got some experience you've got some stuff you're good at by that point give yourself some of that time to think about what those be really honest with yourself about what are those things and it kind of if you could do anything what would those things you'd be you'd want to do not the things you wouldn't you would not want to do and try to take yourself in that direction and then begin to find people who can help you get into that direction and ask for help, I would say. And I think that it's probably similar with the approaching partner thing. I think it's going to be when you get, whether it's a partner title or a VP title, whatever the title is in your particular business, it's another title and another job and another kind of stepping stone up the greasy ladder, if you will. And so kind of, what do you want that to be? So kind of, yes, you're going to achieve the milestone of getting the promotion, if you will, but to what end? You know, what's the thing you want to create? What's the thing you want to be doing a few years after you've achieved that? So I think all of that is about, you know, really thinking about what do you love doing? What's going to make you want to do more of and making sure you kind of stay stay true to that in whatever path you're taking. Well, John, I think some great advice. I think a great place for us to to end today. So thank you very much. It's been great fun. We obviously, we speak a lot, but it's we've never had a chance to dig in. And this is why I love these interviews. So thank you for making the time. And just one last one for anyone who wants to find out more about Channel 3, maybe, you know, to your point, wants to apply to join, wants to find out more about your journey. Where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. On the website's channel3consulting.co.uk. That's three, the number three, not the letter, not the word. Email me, john.howard at channel3consulting.co.uk. Kind of there's, uh, I'm relatively easy to find if you're so inclined and love to talk to anybody. Amazing, John. Well, we'll put all of those details in the show notes. And as I say, thank you very much for coming on the show. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk. And I really look forward to hearing from you.